0: When people first came to New Zealand, they found there, on the very edge of the vast Pacific, an untouched land of wild rainforest and fiery mountains, of impenetrable woodland and monsters within. For before that time, some 800 or so years ago, whilst crusaders and steppe nomads fought it out far away on the other side of the world in Eurasia. No humans had ever set foot in New Zealand. Upon those islands, existing in perfect isolation from the rest of the world, could then be found a rich tapestry of life, eons in the making, since that landmass first split off from the other continents on Earth some 80 million years ago, embarking it on its own unique evolutionary path. Not only was New Zealand unpopulated by humans, but it was mostly lacking in mammals in general. For this was a land of birds, avian fauna having filled every single ecological niche in the food chain, ranging from colossal megafauna known as moa that once stalked the forest floor, far larger than any birds that walk the earth today, to the last tiny holdouts that survived to the present. Here, at the very edge of the Earth, then existed a prehistoric lost world of flightless giants and winged predators, left alone to grow to immense sizes, in perfect equilibrium with each other for millions of years. Yet, all this was about to change. For some time around 800 years ago gliding along the waves by sail and oar on double-canoed catamarans. Likely numbering no more than a few hundred hardy and determined travelers at first. Either fleeing from strife in their homeland or striking out anew, humans arrived in New Zealand. Originating in Southeast Asia some 3,000 years ago or more, The far-flung people, known today as Polynesians, had made crossing the open Pacific their specialty. Ushered ever onwards by the innate human desire to move and explore. Guided across the horizon by the skill of master navigators. Utilising time-honoured techniques of pathfinding, passed on to chosen individuals down through the generations. Today, we can only speculate and wonder at the lives those early Polynesian settlers lived. The stories they told, the sights they saw, and the journeys they made. For when that first ship to arrive in New Zealand left its original homeland, perhaps somewhere in the Society Islands far to the north, reaching land was far from guaranteed. Archaeological and anthropological evidence suggests those settlers who first landed on New Zealand did so by the end of the 13th century. It had a different name then, Aotearoa, meaning Land of the Long White Cloud, originally just representing the North Island. As chance would have it, this turned out to be the very last significant landmass to be colonised by humans anywhere on the planet. This being, in fact, one of the very last exploratory expeditions of Polynesians anywhere. The tradition of great seagoing voyages having fallen out of custom by around the 14th century. Nevertheless, in time, that clan, or perhaps groups of clans, who didn't arrive at their destination until the High Middle Ages, would grow to become one of the most populous Polynesian islands of all numbering some 100,000 people by the time they were discovered by Europeans on the verge of the Victorian era. We know them today as the Maori, the first people to reach New Zealand. This video is sponsored by Magellan TV, a brand new educational streaming service with over 2,000 documentaries to watch on all manner of different subjects. Magellan's producers and curators have brought together an astounding collection of documentaries on history, science, nature, culture and geography. These include films, series and exclusive playlists you can't find anywhere else. Like Netflix, this is a streaming service, but made just for documentary lovers and knowledge seekers. You can watch Magellan anywhere, at any time, on any device, directly through the high quality app which also offers a wide selection of content in 4K at no extra cost. There are no ads or limited access at any time, and the best part, new documentaries are added on a weekly basis. Recently, I've been making my way through Magellan's excellent collection of ancient history documentaries. There's loads to watch on Rome, Egypt, China and so much more those of you who head on over to magellantv.com forward slash history time or use my link in the description below will get a free trial. So, what are you waiting for? Head on over and get yourself some free knowledge. In the year 1768, a solitary British sea vessel glided out onto the vast South Pacific Ocean. She was destined to be the first European ship to make landfall on the islands of New Zealand. Constructed using state-of-the-art new technology, the HMS Endeavour had been commissioned on behalf of the Royal Navy to undertake a voyage of scientific inquiry and exploration in the area with a view to locating the long-hypothesised continent of Terra Australis, then little more than a blank section on the map. The first Europeans to visit New Zealand had been those of the Dutchman Abel Tasman's crew back in the 17th century. They didn't make landfall, however and after encountering a hostile reception from some of the natives, they made a swift exit. For the next 128 years, until the arrival of the endeavor, the place remained an unknown, distant land. The Pacific Ocean covers a third of the entire planet's surface. 165 million square kilometers of unbroken sea dotted with thousands of islands, archipelagos, volcanic rocks, and coral atolls, along with an eclectic diversity of flora, fauna, and flourishing human societies. The commanding officer of the Endeavour, Captain James Cook, was amazed at the eclectic array of peoples and tribes that he and his crew met as they passed through the region in the latter 18th century, scattered across thousands of miles of open blue. Though these people living on such vastly separate islands as Tonga, Samoa, Easter Island, and Hawaii did have differences, for the most part, it was their similarities that were more noticeable even though some were completely cut off from the outside world when Cook arrived. How had these people got to islands as far afield as Hawaii and Easter Island, the men wondered? Islands that were thousands of miles away from each other and completely unknown to Europeans until a few decades earlier. Of course, theories would abound in the coming decades of long-lost Pacific-spanning continents sinking under the sea at some point in antiquity, leaving those far-flung islanders presumably clinging on to mountains and highlands as the last survivors. Such was the European disdain for the people they encountered. Of course, the truth was far more amazing than anyone could ever invent. The real origin of these people was the most simple of all. They were all descended from a single seafaring group, known as the Polynesians, separated only by geographical distance and the passing of time. In September 1769, the Endeavour anchored off the coast of New Zealand. Becoming the first European vessel to successfully reach the islands since that of Abel Tasman 127 years earlier. In a six month long encounter, Cook and his crew met with the Maori inhabitants of the region dozens of times. On board his ship and at their settlements, on one occasion even sailing 20 kilometres inland to meet the tribes of the interior. In truth, the secret of the expedition's success was a Polynesian priest who had been taken aboard as a guide in Tahiti, to help in the search for the lost continent. In time, becoming integral as an interpreter, Tupaya could converse on a rudimentary level in both English and Maori, it being a related language to the one that he spoke on Tahiti. And this was likely the reason why Cook's party weren't met with similar levels of hostility as Tasman's had been. For the Maori also had legends of a lost continent. The ancestral homeland in the Pacific, their ancestors had first sprung from all those hundreds of years before, known to them as Hiawaka. Topea, able to understand his cousins on a rudimentary level, made a significant impact on the Maori, and understandably was seen as a far more important figure than Captain Cook or the gentleman scientist Joseph Banks. If you want to hear Cook's first-hand account of his landing in New Zealand, then you can do so here, over on our second channel, Voices of the Past. And don't forget to subscribe for more historical content. In a tragic, though all too common occurrence, Tupaya died on the return journey in December 1770, from disease. His unique knowledge of pre-European Maori culture and history going out with him. Though Cook hadn't intentioned any particular malice or ill will, over the century to come, tens of thousands of Polynesians would follow Tupaya to the grave by a combination of disease and devastation as a result of European contact. Cook didn't make it back to Europe either, eventually being killed in Hawaii in 1779. During the course of his three voyages and four visits to the country, Cook circumnavigated the entirety of New Zealand, spending a total of 328 days off its coast. There had been misunderstandings, In 1773, for example, 10 expedition members were killed and eaten, after a particularly deadly encounter with a group of Maori warriors. Nevertheless, on the whole, with the initial help from Tupaya, Cook was as respectful as he could be, introducing numerous areas to the existence of the wider world. By the late 18th century, the Maori population probably stood at around 100,000. Upon the arrival of Europeans, in most areas, day-to-day life didn't change much. It would take some time for the negative impacts of disease and introduced species to become apparent. Though turnips and potatoes introduced by Cook very quickly became staple foods in the areas they were introduced to, and metal began to revolutionise life in others. In time, pigs, metal, and muskets were all introduced, as well as a steady line of sailors, sealers, traders, whalers, and assorted adventurers from Europe, seeking a new life in the wilds of the new continent. Life there would never be the same again. By the beginning of the 1800s, as Christian missionaries began to make significant inroads on the islands. Disease began to leave its mark too. Over the span of thousands of years Europeans had developed hard-won immunities to the many animal-borne epidemics that came with domesticating animals. New Zealand had no farm animals and thus no immunity developed over the generations. As epidemics tore through the native population, the Europeans, known as Pakeha, did not die, leading many Maori to start to wonder whether their gods had abandoned them. Some of them joining with the European missionaries to condemn their own ancestral way of life as devil worship. By the 1840s, two-thirds of Maori had become Christian. With each passing year, more wisdom and knowledge was lost. Yet cultural amnesia and disease weren't the only danger. By the 1820s, bartering and adaptation by Maori living on the far northern tip of the North Island led to an arms race between the old world and the new. These tribes, known as Nagapui, came to possess muskets ahead of their rivals, thus sparking off a total escalation of older tribal conflicts, known as the Musket Wars. A systematic settling of old scores by groups wielding vastly superior firepower to their neighbours. In the ensuing 30-year bloodbath between 1807 and 1837, ...some 3,000 battles were fought between Maori tribes... ...leading to the enslavement of tens of thousands... ...and the deaths of as many as 40,000. From then on, it was a relatively simple affair for the British... ...to trick elements of the Maori leadership... ...into accepting rule by the British Empire... ...by signing the misleading Treaty of Waitangi. Yet, the Maori did not surrender not by a long shot. A series of fight backs continued until well into the 1870s, including numerous embarrassing defeats for the British by outnumbered and outgunned Maori warriors. By this time, however, Europeans almost outnumbered the natives. There would be no going back. Despite their clearly impressive levels of adaptability, the racial stereotyping of Maori began very early on, for this was the era of social Darwinism, usually portraying Maoris as little more than savages. A different type to the allegedly simple ones of Australia, but savages nonetheless. The reality being that Australia simply had no domesticatable animals or plants, meaning the people there remained hunter-gatherers, and New Zealand had very few, leading to the farming society that formed. Many Maori had been relatively quick to adapt to European ways of life. No matter how hard the missionaries tried, however, veneration for the ancestors and the traditions of old could not be rooted out. Maori were extremely interested in their own past, preserving it through a culture of oral storytelling. A culture which was still very much alive when certain European writers and Maori who had recently learned how to write began to document it during the 1800s. ...solidifying a rich corpus of mythological tales on paper for the next generation. From Easter Island to Tonga, across the vast arc of the Pacific Ocean... ...is a distance of over 6,500 kilometres. Hawaii is even further, yet, nevertheless, many of the same legends and stories can be found in these far-off lands. One of the most famous of the bunch is that of Maui, a trickster god, always curious and exploring. The tale has different details and variations from island to island. Yet, there are several common aspects, held between all, with Maui usually said to have pulled up the islands of the Pacific to the surface using his magic fishing hook after going sailing with his brothers one day. This may seem an unusual tale, yet in the context of Polynesia, it makes perfect sense. Travelling hundreds, maybe even thousands of miles, without any sight of land, without the help of any modern navigational aids, master navigators would steer with a single large oar, using the ocean current, the planets, the clouds, the moon, the stars, and the sun as guides, seeing the ocean not as an obstacle, but as a pathway. Put simply, from around 1500 BC, When the ancestors of the Polynesians, fishermen and farmers left Southeast Asia to make a new life on the wide ocean, there were many Mauis. To those that followed them over the years, ancient wayfinders would have seemed to have done just that, to have essentially plucked land out of thin air on the endless ocean. They still had priestly, sacred associations when Cook arrived in the 18th century. Over the next 1,000 years, the culture and languages of these people took on unique Polynesian aspects, clearly distinguishable by their material culture, often linked to ocean voyaging and colonisation. Great double-headed canoes could carry as many as 200 people a short distance, and 100 people as well as supplies for much further. We don't know what prompted these people to leave their homelands, whether it was the result of conflict, societal pressures, or simply the innate human desire to travel, carried within us all from our hundreds of thousands of years wandering on the open savannah. ...but we do know that the benefits for those who succeeded were impressive. The Pacific was the last major region on Earth to be peopled by humans. Around 2,000 years ago, led by master navigators journeying to distant lands over the sunrise... ...it was Samoan explorers who set out across the vast ocean to the east. Here, the islands are much more scattered and smaller than those they travelled from. Volcanic and coral atolls dotted over enormous expanses of water. Common must have been the journey that reached no end. Especially careful organisation was needed and whilst some islands maintained contacts with each other, Others would never hear from their relatives again, remaining completely isolated in their new homes. Taking with them coconut, breadfruit, paper mulberry, pandanus, taro, yams, gourd, kumara, dogs, pigs, edible rats and fowl. Everything needed to start a new civilization. In recent years, those early Polynesian explorers and settlers, responsible for populating the entire Pacific Ocean, have been called Vikings of the Pacific. But in reality, long before sails were ever adopted in Scandinavia, Polynesians were embarking on some of the greatest voyages of exploration ever undertaken by humans. Though often isolated from one another, Parts of the Pacific had once been a giant interconnected system, joined together by the greatest seafarers who ever lived. Men and women who traversed thousands of miles of open sea with nothing to guide them save the ocean, the wind and the sky. Expeditions required astonishing skills and levels of wayfinding which are lost today. The culture of voyaging gradually disappearing over the years as each island adopted a new culture. By the 16th century, major voyages seem to have mostly ceased. We know of these journeys by the very existence of the island nations themselves and from oral tradition, written observances of Europeans archaeological evidence on items such as petroglyphs and by trying them out for ourselves. Midway through the 20th century a certain level of skepticism still existed around the exploits of ancient Polynesians. Norwegian writer Thor Heyerdahl took it upon himself to not only prove these naysayers wrong, but further to demonstrate that Polynesians may have even made it to America. A prospect hinted at by the existence of a South American sweet potato in the larder of certain Polynesians, and small amounts of genetic evidence too. Between April and August, 1947, Hayadal completed his journey on the Kontiki from South America to Hawaii using only traditional techniques and a Polynesian canoe. In the 1970s, another similar expedition was successfully launched. When a vessel named the Hokulea travelled from Hawaii to Tahiti using only traditional Polynesian techniques, sparking off a renaissance of interest in the old ways. Interest that culminated most recently in 2017 when the Hokulea completed a worldwide voyage using old techniques. A three-year circumnavigation of the Earth, covering some 47,000 nautical miles. It was sometime in the 13th century, at the very end, but perhaps pinnacle of this period of expansion, that a similar canoe to this first made landfall in the islands we know today as New Zealand. Until relatively recently, the colonisation of New Zealand was thought by many to have occurred as early as the 10th century, led by a Polynesian navigator named Kupe. Only some 400 years later, then being followed by a great fleet of Maori canoes, who displaced the previous Moriori people. Though there may have indeed been a navigator named Kupe, a figure spoken of by many myths all over the islands. The rest of the tale, still taught in schools until well into the second half of the 20th century, is a complete myth, largely invented by Europeans and then eventually adopted by Maori through the education system. In reality, there is no evidence whatsoever for one group of earlier settlers who were then displaced by the Maori of the great fleet in 1350. The tale, in fact, being favored to a certain degree as it justified subsequent British claims over New Zealand. Traditional Maori ethnographers have long traced their ancestry back to around 1300. And in recent years, there has been much evidence for this, not the earlier date. Analysis of rat DNA, stowaways aboard ocean-going vessels that arrived in New Zealand at the same time as the first people, suggests that there may have in fact been multiple colonisations around this time. Though it remained near impossible to pinpoint exactly where these voyagers first landed, with varying different theories existing from north to south. It's even possible that some of the canoe journeys mythologised by later descendants might have actually begun within New Zealand itself, with clans travelling to a different part of the islands in order to find the best land and resources. One of the most tantalising clues found in recent years is a pearl shell fish lure found at Tarua on the eastern side of the Coromandel Peninsula, dating from the late 13th century. Was this item made by one of the first people in New Zealand? Genetic and archaeological evidence at the Wairau Bar site at the north of the South Island suggests a date of around 1280 for the Polynesian arrival. The fact that some Polynesian crops obviously survived the crossing does suggest that at least some of the initial settlers arrived somewhere on the North Island, or at least made their initial base here. Any further south and the crops simply wouldn't survive, for this was a much colder land than they were used to. Of the 8 root crops and 11 plant crops found in Polynesia, only 6 would grow in New Zealand. If they had brought chicken and pig with them too, they soon died out, leaving only dogs and rats as introduced species. The bountiful coconut, secret to Polynesian success on the Pacific, and the trusty banana tree could not grow in this temperate climate. Even the Kamara sweet potato could only be grown with significant effort under highly favorable conditions. Yet, nonetheless, they, more so than any of their ancestors, had hit the jackpot. With 18,000 kilometers of coastline to explore, filled with seemingly inexhaustible amounts of food and textiles in the form of the hardy flax plant, Abundant and widespread in wetlands, which provided essential material for garments, baskets, mats, cordage, and much else. Fish and crustaceans were abundant. Seals and sea lions lounged by the shore, never having encountered humans before, they were easy pickings. Colossal whales even beached themselves from time to time. No doubt feeding entire communities, and in time, forming a major part of Maori mythology. But it was inland where the greatest prizes of all could be found, for those daring enough to go searching. Just like in Australia, Mammals, as we know them anyway, never made it to New Zealand. But, unlike Australia, where marsupials developed instead, New Zealand's birds became the apex animals, filling all of the niches their mammalian cousins would usually fill in the rest of the world. Some 378 species of them, many of which cannot be found anywhere else on Earth. The most iconic of these avian species must surely be the moa. Colossal flightless birds that developed in isolation without the risk of mammalian predators. They spent their lives wandering peacefully around the forest floor, and of course made easy targets for hungry people. And in time, their staple diet. The Wairo Bar excavations revealed a world molded by the moa. The people here used moa eggshells to carry water, and their bones for the manufacture of fish hooks, harpoons and ornaments. At the mouth of the Waitaki River, anywhere between 29,000 to 90,000 individual specimens have been found. Further south, at the mouth of the Shag River, at least 6,000 moa were slaughtered in a very short space of time. Recently discovered cave paintings hint at this long gone by time, when humans and megafauna lived side by side. Though, archaeology hints at other beasts too. For, prior to the human arrival, the moa had just one predator, Another animal that grew larger and larger over millions of years in mirroring its prey. With vertebrae the size of a child's head, the Harst's eagle was the largest predatory eagle ever to soar through the skies. And it is very likely that for a brief time, it developed a taste for human flesh. Though intriguingly, Moa seem to have not survived in Maori legend. The Haast's eagle certainly does. In mythological tales from the South to the North Island, all birds are winged, and many are carnivorous. With few alternative sources of food as easy to acquire as Moa, who had no fear of humans, New Zealand's newly arrived Polynesian people quickly grew accustomed to killing and eating them. Within a century, all of the slow-breeding moa, along with their predators, were gone forever. It had been the same all over the world in places where animals were not used to humans. In Australia, South America and even with the mammoths of Europe. Slow-breeding megafauna simply would not survive after fast-breeding and intelligent, tool-using humans entered an area. Though eventually Maori would be forced to adopt a largely vegetarian diet, those early settlers lived in a land of plenty, with enough meat to go around. Protein is excellent for fertility, meaning the population would have increased very quickly, with geneticists and demographers arguing that a starting population of just 100 to 200 people could easily have increased to 100,000 by the 18th century, given the massive boost provided by the Moa. Archaeological evidence suggests that those early settlers, whether they arrived on just a handful of canoes or many more, had explored all of the islands by the 14th century, even visiting the remotest areas of Fiordland. And they weren't finished either. Some groups may have left New Zealand entirely to attempt to settle the Norfolk Islands to get to a way station on Pitcairn, on Raoul Island in the Kermadax, and certainly the Chatham Islands, where a distinct group known as the Moriori developed, the real origin of that earlier New Zealand myth of two Maori tribes. The initial colonial period lasted for around 100 to 150 years, after which time the slow breeding Moa were pretty much all dead, in most areas leading to a complete revolutionising of society, and the roots of later Maori culture to come. On the South Island, many groups entered a mass migration to better climes on the north, And evidence exists of a great cataclysmic fire that tore across the islands towards the end of this period. Perhaps this was a last attempt to root out any surviving Moa by desperate people. Maybe it was slash-and-burn style agriculture, such as happened all over the world in ancient times. For example, in Neolithic and Bronze Age Europe. No Polynesian settler would have wanted to kill every single Moa. Nor did they realise that's what they were doing. The effects of which ended their world. Yet, for better or for worse, the damage was done. And they would have to live with the consequences. From then on, going it alone. A new age had dawned. An era of man. On a misty dawn morning in December 1642, 121 days out of the port city of Jakarta, two Dutch trading vessels sailing on behalf of the Dutch East India Company in order to search out the long-hypothesised continent of Terra Australis, sighted land upon the horizon. Heading due east from Mauritius, across entirely uncharted waters, Abel Tasman's boats had managed to completely miss Australia, but land they found nonetheless. On the morning of the 17th, they saw smoke rising from the shore, the unmistakable sign of people. What happened next exists only in the Dutch records. The Maori themselves who took part have no voice in this tale. Themselves being wiped out, by invading musket-wielding North Islanders in the early 19th century. Though, recent archeological research has shown that Tasman's ships probably arrived at a major agricultural area. According to the ship's records, as Tasman's men rowed to shore to collect water, two double-headed canoes packed with Maori in turn came out to inspect them. Having no idea of the complicated, time-honored etiquette of Maori meeting rituals, Tasman's men unwittingly launched into what must have seemed to the natives like a challenge, returning a trumpet horn and shouting to the assembled Maori warriors who promptly attacked, ramming Tasman's boat and killing several of the terrified Dutchmen. Shots were fired from both sides and as Tasman eventually sailed out of the bay, he observed 22 more war canoes near the shore, 11 of which swarmed with warriors eager to fight. Tasman's instructions had been clear to not engage the natives. He promptly left, never to return, but not before naming the place Murderer's Bay. The body of at least one deceased Dutchman does seem to have been taken ashore, possibly to be cooked and eaten, in order for his mana, a sort of spiritual capital, often translated as prestige or authority, to be absorbed by the victors. Whether they realised it or not, those Maori had got off lightly. Disease didn't get into the islands at this time. And Europeans wouldn't be back for over 120 years to come. They didn't realise it either, but Tasman's crew had just come into contact with their first taste of the complex traditions of Maori life. For mana wasn't the only concept to play a huge part in society. Utu, often seen as a sort of eye for an eye revenge, is far more complicated than that. It is an obligation for reciprocity, not simply negative, but positive too. For example, a leading warrior is obliged by tradition to return a gift as much as he is an attack. The breaking of taboo, such as trespassing in a holy area, was tantamount to treason and a death sentence. The roots of this elaborate system of mutual respect between groups lies in the mysterious 14th and 15th centuries, usually seen as a transitional time wherein the Maori became less nomadic, settling down in defined territories and beginning to form associations based on kinship and tribal affiliation, many of which claimed descent from one of those first canoes to land on the islands. This desire to put down roots may have come about partly as a result of the harsh adjustments people had been forced to make to their lifestyles following a massive population increase and ensuing demise of the megafauna of New Zealand. It's even possible that certain Maori groups collectively learned from this experience, choosing to not hunt as many of the remaining birds afterwards and continuing to foster wide-ranging trade networks between areas with access to differing foodstuffs. Thus, Maori not only survived, but flourished by expanding and intensifying their remaining sources of food production. With the exception of the south of the South Island, which remained sparsely populated and fishing reigned supreme, gardening became especially important horticulture perhaps providing half of the food of the islands by the 18th century. Foraging too remained important, with many trees and forests becoming partially domesticated, acting as a garden much like the ancient Amazon rainforest. It wasn't just food that was traded either. By the 15th century South Island Maori were exporting greenstone to the rest of the islands on an industrial scale. Settlers in the Bay of Plenty on the North Island oversaw the distribution of volcanic obsidian to far-flung shores. And Nelson residents at the north of the South Island quarried and distributed argillite. variety of foodstuffs, only readily available in certain areas, would also be stored and bartered with other tribes. Thus, though the great ocean-going canoes had disappeared by the 18th century, extensive use of waka still remained to travel across lakes, rivers and coasts, from the north to the south to trade their wares. Thus, by the time Europeans arrived in New Zealand, every possible societal niche had been utilised and an incredibly complex series of states born. This was the last major community in the world to be untouched by globalisation. On the Chatham Islands, to New Zealand's east, where resources were scarce and the population remained small, As a testament to the power of human adaptability, warfare, and violence in general, was outlawed. On New Zealand, the population was simply too large to put anything like this in place. But, complicated checks and balances did exist to stop any one power from overcoming the others. New Zealand had arguably a more complex and extensive culture than anywhere else in Polynesia. Throughout the 15th century, as the Maori population continued to grow, increased competition for resources not only led to tribal organizations, but warfare. A general culture of competitiveness meant that there was constant need to be vigilant. Sometimes tribes would come together to federate, other times they would fight each other in a shifting patchwork of allegiances. It may be that this system eventually emigrated to the South Island, where people still lived a nomadic existence for longer, perhaps via invading tribes. Eventually, certain groups would build massive fortresses, partly to stake claims on the land partly as meeting places, and refuges to flee to in times of war. It was here that Maori warriors made their stands against the British in the land wars of the 1860s. These fortresses, known as Pa, were elaborately constructed, with ditches, banks, palisades, and usually an interior stronghold. Near impregnable to sieges in pre-European times, and in themselves a way of avoiding warfare. Yet living in these paths wasn't usually a permanent way of life. They were there for emergencies in times of war, which would come and go. For example, when Cook and his men arrived in 1769 They found Maori living extremely differing lifestyles, noting that whilst some lived in perfect peace and harmony, presumably having already been assured of peace by the diplomacy of Tupaya, others seemed to be in a constant state of war, having taken up residence in their ancient hillfort complexes. We now know that it was probably Cook's very arrival which precipitated this temporary lifestyle change. Traditionally, warfare probably only took place in the summer months, and populations largely remained unaffected by it, with only hand-to-hand weapons available. Tribal groups would seldom be able to overcome their rivals entirely. Skilled warriors were, of course, highly prized members of society, but there were many other aspects of life, too. Prior to the arrival of Europeans, Maori enjoyed a deep spiritual connection with the world they inhabited. Tohunga, a sort of priestly class, sometimes called chosen ones, acted as intermediaries between humankind and the spirit world. They knew how to utilize the forces of nature, primarily in order to invoke protection and to heal. Though, in some circumstances, they were said to have used black magic to bring misfortune on their enemies. Flax, a fibre crop, was an invaluable resource for everyday life. Weaving from flax was a career reserved for the women of the tribe, many becoming master craftspeople in their own right. Tattooing, a tradition widespread throughout the Pacific Islands, became more and more elaborate and unique as time went on. An intricate system of storytelling plastered right onto the skin, each design a different chapter in the book. Tattooists were greatly admired, though another art form, wood carving, in time became perhaps the most sought-after skill of all and one which during the course of the transitional 15th century would distinguish Maori from their East Polynesian forebears. This was very much a career reserved for master craftsmen, experts who would spend their entire lives in enhancing the mana of their entire community through the representation of deities and the spirits of the ancestors. These intricate motifs, somewhat reminiscent of animal art styles found all over the earth, would be placed wherever they could be. On doors, houses, canoes, weapons, staffs and trinkets. Nevertheless, this was an incredibly harsh life. To live to around 30 was probably the life expectancy. To live to 50 was exceptional. Tupaya wasn't the only Polynesian islander to accompany Cook on his missions to New Zealand. An interpreter named Hiti Hiti accompanied him on his second mission, and Omai on the third. In the space of many years and many meetings with Maori, these men successfully communicated to their cousins that a far larger world existed outside of their own. And, of course, this knowledge lit a fire of curiosity within many of their hearts. Omai had even visited England. Of course, upon hearing of this wider world, many Maori wished to travel with Cook away from their islands to see these wonders for themselves. It is in this context that in the 1770s, an adventurous young man named Te Wararu and his even younger relative Koa simply wouldn't accept no for an answer from Cook, eventually accompanying their new friend and mentor Omai to the Cook Islands, Tonga and eventually to the Societies, where their ancestors may have first colonised New Zealand from some 400 years before. There is a sad end to this tale. Like so many Polynesians over the century to come, all three men died within a few years before ever returning to New Zealand. The 19th and the 20th centuries were not kind to Maori. Epidemics and a general loss of their place in the world led to a steep decline in population until around 1900 despite fighting admirably on the front lines for the British during the First and Second World Wars, until very recently, endemic societal disadvantages and governmental laws kept them in a state of second-class citizenship, a situation the nation is still struggling to overcome today. Only time will tell what the future holds.